We uh, began last week a series uh, that we titled um, Living with the Benjamins, and we're talking about money, and I began last week by apologizing uh, for not speaking about money more. Some of you cringe when, you know, when the pastor gets up to talk about money, but, but in fact, Jesus talked about money more than just about any other topic, uh, and, and so when we neglect to do that, uh, we're missing something that was central to what Jesus wanted us to understand uh, about our lives and about our possessions. So last week we discovered that Jesus talked about money and possessions more than any other topic, that God wants each of us to move from financial survival to financial stability to financial significance. I'm not going to go back and rehearse all of that. You can uh, watch last week's message online. Uh, We learned that what the Bible wants to teach us about money is not primarily what God wants from us. And if there's anything I want you to hear at the outset is this. It's not primarily what God wants from us, but what he wants for us. Things like freedom and peace and joy. We also noted that there's a problem that we Americans define the good life in terms of accumulation of money and stuff, i.e. possessions. And yet the good life that we uh, are convinced that we want is in fact the enemy of the great life that God intends us to experience. And as we thought about that, we saw that our culture especially the media, the advertisement industry keeps us laser focused on what we don't have and what we think we need. But if we're constantly staring at stuff, we'll never get past financial survival to financial stability, let alone financial significance. So we need to stop obsessing about what we can get and start thinking about what we can give because... And this is kind of where we ended last week. Generosity is the key that unlocks the door to financial freedom. The life that is truly life is the life, uh, is the generous life. The life that God intends us is the generous life. So that's where we were last week. And last week we uh, we offered... Uh, to everyone, a copy of uh, the Treasure Principle. Uh, we have we ran out last week. We had quite a run on those, uh, so we ordered some more, and uh, there are more at the back today. And we're asking for now that you take one per family, but it's it's our gift to you as uh, as you leave today, or perhaps you picked one up on the way in. Well, this morning, I want to begin this session with a reminder. So whether we recognize it or not, stuff has a hold on our hearts. And of course, I'm using stuff to represent possessions, money and possessions. Stuff has a hold on our hearts. And when Marcy and I were newlyweds, uh, with the exception of a bed that my parents bought for us as a wedding present, uh, all of our furniture... All of it, every single item was hand-me-down furniture. And in fact, a lot of it still is. One of the pieces was a hide-a-bed couch that Marcy's parents gave us. Uh, Life happened on that couch. I mean, when I was in graduate school, I read there, I studied there, I fell asleep with a book over my face on that couch. 
Uh, together we watched TV on our secondhand black and white television with rabbit ears uh, from that couch. Uh, when we had kids, they climbed all over it. They jumped on it. They slept on it, did other things on it. Occasionally, the, occasionally they actually sat on it. You need to understand that it was old when we received it. By the time we moved here to Olympia and got into our new home, it was very, very well-worn. We discovered that uh, while it had been in storage, a family of mice had made their home in it. And so we took a trip to Seldon's in Tacoma and bought a new, very, very nice couch and a few other items of furniture. It was the nicest thing we had ever bought. So here's what else I did. I, uh, I made up new rules for the kids on that couch. Strict rules, which unbelievably they violated. And so uh, I reacted. I, I got upset with them. Uh, I quickly came to the realization that I hadn't cared before about what the kids did on the furniture, but now I was obsessed with it. And so I was becoming angry and yelling at my kids, whom I love more than anything, and uh, certainly more than that new couch for just being kids and doing things that kids do. And I, and I asked myself, what is that? Why is that? Can any of you relate to that, or am I just a moral degenerate, you know? For you, it may not be a couch. Maybe for you, it's some other piece of furniture or uh, or a carpet or a car or a boat or something else. But that thing owns a part of your heart so that when it gets damaged in some way, you get all wound up because you're wrapped up in it, in stuff. And if it is really more important than the people we otherwise say we love and care about, then there's something wrong. What is that? Why is that? And and I'm so glad that God has given us his word, that, that Jesus talked about everyday kinds of things, things that affect all of us in our everyday lives. And he actually addressed this very matter in a very clear way in Matthew 6. And he didn't just address it superficially. Instead, he said, stuff has your heart. Stuff has your heart. But here's how to get past it. Here's how to live a different life. The good life that we think we really want is the enemy of the great life that God intends for us. So would you stand with me and let's read this together. Matthew six nineteen through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness! 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, perhaps you have a Bible with you or a, or a cell phone with a Bible app or something of that nature. In verse 19, Jesus starts into this subject with these words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And we need to stop right there for just a moment because I, I don't want you to be confused about what he's saying. Jesus is not saying, don't save for college, don't have a savings account or a retirement account, don't plan ahead, don't be an attentive steward of your resources. He's not saying any of that. He's saying something quite different. He's trying to define for us what treasures on earth are in actuality. And what he wants us to understand is that treasures on earth are those things that are subject to deterioration, to destruction, and to theft. Which means that they're entirely temporary in their very nature. Here today, gone tomorrow. Destined for the garage sale or the thrift store or the landfill. Often in that order. And I wonder if you've ever noticed that when some of us hear three words, we head for the store. You know what those words are? New and improved. New and improved. See, our culture keeps us laser-focused on what we don't have and what we therefore think we need. And you and I have been conditioned, whether we're willing to acknowledge it or not, we've been conditioned when we see or hear the words new and improved to think that the older and the unimproved is now obsolete and undesirable so that we have to swap out the old for the new, even though the old is serving us just fine. Thank you very much. I mean, have you ever seen the lines at at the Apple Store or Best Buy when the latest iPad or iPhone, the newest MacBook or the newest video game system goes on the market? It's crazy. I mean, people will literally trample others and cause them physical harm in order to beat them to the store display. Even though at home they have fully functioning versions of the same product. See, if it's newer, if it's faster, if it's shinier, if it's sleeker, we are conditioned to believe that we have got to have it or somehow we are less. And it really goes there. Not that that what we have is less, but that somehow we are less. There's a spiritual dimension to this. I I read recently that that there's a trend in the United States where people who own homes with two-car garages are adding actually a third garage just to contain the stuff, not, not, to, not to take a car or a boat, but only to contain the stuff they already own so that they can spread it out, <laughs> which also demonstrates the reason that the storage industry uh, is so incredibly profitable. In fact, did you, do you know that the self-storage, self-storage is the number one fastest-growing commercial 
real estate investment in the nation. I mean, it's, it's a great deal if you've got a, you know, if you've got some money to invest in storage. Uh, I read an article that explored some of the reasons why that is true. And here, here's what one person close to the storage industry observed. He said, stuff, and he used the word stuff, stuff is an emotional, psychological tie to people. People don't want to get rid of stuff for a variety of reasons. There are pictures, heirlooms, heirlooms, old clothing, and sentimental items that we just can't get rid of. There are bigger things like furniture that we keep because we swear we'll get back on top soon, get a larger home back, and, and we'll need to furnish it again. So why not let it go in the first place? After all, economically, it would be cheaper to let the stuff, he used the word C-R-A-P, go than spending hundreds of dollars per month on a self-storage unit for years to keep the stuff. But that's not how it works when people are emotionally attached to their stuff. There's another industry observer that said that the reason that storage facilities are so successful is that people will pay a monthly fee to store things that have a monetary value that is often less than a month's rent. And they will leave them there for years because they're simply too attached to their possessions to make a better, smarter, wiser choice. Isn't that crazy? Jesus said, be careful of that. Don't do that. Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. In Luke 12, 15, he put it another way. Watch out and guard yourselves from all greediness because not even when someone has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. You see, life, the life that is truly life, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy 6, doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. Success in life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Instead, he said, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Last week, we read in 1 Timothy where Paul wrote, command those who are rich in the world. And we decided who it is that is rich in the world. It's us, you and me. Again, just a glimpse back, if your income is equal to or greater than the medium income in Thurston County, you are in the top two-tenths of 1% of the world's wealthiest people. See, even if you're on public assistance in the United States, you're wealthier than 95% of the world population. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, I I grew up, in the church. I grew up going to Sunday school, and I, and I remember being taught this verse that we just looked at in Matthew 6.20, you know, don't lay up um, 
lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I, and I thought, what? 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 What's that? How do you do that? Why should I be careful? Why should I choose not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures in heaven? The answer is because where my treasures are, that's where my heart is going to set up camp. Where my treasures are, is where my heart is going to set up camp. Wherever my treasures are is where my heart is going to focus its gaze. For where your treasure is, Jesus said, Matthew 6, 21, there your heart will be also. You might ask, well, how do I know where my heart is? And if you want to know where your heart is now, follow the treasure trail. Your heart pursues what it treasures. Your credit card statement, your checkbook ledger will tell you where your treasure is. Last week I suggested that between now and February 14th, you you keep a receipt for every single purchase, no matter how small that purchase is, so that you can see where your money is going. And a byproduct of that same exercise is that it will likely give you a report card on where your treasure really is. See, the reason that the the moon goes around the earth and not the earth around the moon is that the earth has a stronger gravitational pull, right? And similarly, there's a, a spiritual law of gravity. If you were to take a sum of money and put a little of it over here in this account and, and a whole bunch of it over there in that account, which, which one will you value most? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Your, your heart will remain in orbit around whichever has the greatest gravitational pull. And so there's a corollary to that that I want you to understand this morning. And maybe you've heard this before. Maybe this is just a reminder. It's something I need to be reminded of often. The corollary is, since it's true that my heart follows my treasure, then it is also true that if I redirect my treasure, it will redirect my heart. If I redirect my treasure, it will redirect my heart. If I want to redirect my heart, then I must first redirect my treasure and my heart will follow. Let's watch this video together. When I was a little girl, my dad would disappear for sometimes a week at a time. We would wait and we'd wonder When is he coming home? We later learned that my dad had a gambling problem. So he would disappear and he would go gamble. And if he lost, you know, he didn't come home in a great mood. When he had won, he came home in a fantastic mood. I remember this one incident. My dad had been gone for about a week and he came home. He said, girls, get in the car. So my younger sister and I hopped in the car, and he pulled into a parking lot at a big toy store. 
we walk into the store and he said the magic words, girls, you can have anything you want. That was the beginning of, of years and years of me looking for stuff to fill this deepening hole in my heart. Ken was the first man that I fell deeply in love with. And so when we decided to get married, it was all about the ring. It was going to be a perfect color. I wanted a one and a half carat white diamond. I wanted people to know how much I'm loved. So I got what I wanted. I got this wonderful marriage. I got the big ring and we began to go into deep debt. We were living paycheck to paycheck. My husband had to work two jobs to pay for the things that I wanted. And I had to work full time with a little baby at home. My desire to truly be loved was consuming us. I was searching for love and stuff. And Ken was trying to love me by giving it to me. I was invited to come on a leader's retreat. The leader was speaking and she said, what can we do to change the world around us? I just remember feeling my heart beating and I thought, my ring. It's worth a lot of money. It was appraised at $20,000. What if my ring could do more for someone else than by sitting on my finger? Having that epiphany that what I wore on my finger could save human life was where my transformation really began. Maybe about six months you know, into this experience, my husband said, you keep talking about selling that ring, but when are you going to do it? In my mind, I'd committed to it. In my heart, I committed to it, but I wasn't willing to take the action until then. I didn't feel sad about it. I don't think I ever cried over it. It was just this feeling of, this is right. It was a deep realization that the ring was not the symbol of my love, and it didn't represent how much my husband loved me. There is more to being joyful. There's more to true happiness than our stuff. By taking off our masks, the things we wear, and trying to look a certain way, trying to have certain things so we can look like everybody else. If we're willing to be vulnerable, I think what people will see is the real beauty. I was a taker, and uh, I feel like I've learned to be a giver. If I want to redirect my heart, then I must first redirect my treasure, and my heart will follow. For example, you might say, well, I've always wanted to uh, have a heart for the poor. How much money do you give to the alleviation of poverty? 
How much time do you set aside to serve the poor? You might say, I want a greater heart for God. Well, how much of your money are you giving to kingdom purposes? We all wish it was easy to change our hearts, but it's not, is it? Remember the easy button from the Staples commercials? If I told you I had an easy button and if you pushed the button, you'd be content and happy and satisfied. <laughs> you'd no longer to need to engage in retail therapy in order to comfort yourself. You'd be up here in a flash pressing that button, button wouldn't you? The only problem in that scenario is that there is no easy button that leads to meaningful life change. The kind of change we're talking about today is incredibly challenging because it goes to our hearts. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. The two, God and money, God and stuff, are vying for top place in your life, competing for the devotion of your heart. It's the spiritual gravity principle where your money is going is where your heart will go. What Jesus is talking about is not primarily a financial issue, but a heart issue. And just before he said, you cannot serve God and money, he said in verses 22 to 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Well, if you're scratching your head and saying, what's that all about? I'm with you. Let me ask you this. How do you know where you're walking? Your body follows your eye, right? Just as your body follows your eye, so your heart follows your treasure. The word healthy there comes, in fact, comes, in fact, from a root word that means benevolent or generous. Benevolent or generous. The word bad comes from a word, actually, that means envious. So let's read it that way just for fun, shall we? If your eye is generous and benevolent, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is greedy and envious, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If your heart is dark, then your whole life, your whole attitude, your whole being will be dark. By the way, the word body there, when it says your whole body will be full of light or your your whole body will be full of darkness, the body just represents the whole of your being. Now think about it. Have you ever met a happy, greedy person? I mean, truly happy, greedy person? No, it doesn't happen, does it? Greedy people are never content, so they're never happy. They're grumpy and they're gloomy. Have you ever met an unhappy, 
generous person. And I suspect I would say whether they were Christian or non-Christian. Have you ever met a truly generous, unhappy person? The truly generous people are nearly always encouraging, contented, and optimistic people. I came across an article that featured the results of a research study conducted by the University of British Columbia that was published in the Journal of Health Psychology. And they discovered that sharing your resources, whether it's financial or material, contributes to your health and to your happiness, while being stingy can actually lead to physical sickness. One of the researchers said, the moral of the story is that the economic decisions we make can have downstream health consequences. And they found three things in particular that I thought were noteworthy. First, that generosity reduces stress. Imagine that. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Keeping more for ourselves should reduce stress, shouldn't it? Study participants were given money and a choice, keep it or share it. Stress levels were in direct proportion to their willingness to give, giving lowered stress. Amazing. Secondly, second finding was that generosity uh, relieves shame. Wow. That caught my eye because... Shame is something that goes to the core of our being. Study participants who who chose to keep more for themselves felt higher levels of shame. (laughs) The higher the shame, the more stress they felt. And they concluded that focused, intentional generosity can instead produce confidence, joy, and contentment. Wow. Third, they concluded that generosity increases health and happiness. I guess that's just kind of the flip side of what went before. But giving lowered the level of uh, cortisol produced by the body, when, uh, which is harmful at high levels. Higher levels of cortisol are present as stress, stress and shame increase. So the study proved that giving money away to others makes people happier than spending it on themselves. No wonder one of the wisest men who has ever lived observed that a cheerful heart is good medicine. Why is that? It's because where your treasure goes, your heart goes, and where your heart goes, your whole life goes. So really, the study discovered what Jesus had been saying all along. If you want to make changes in your life, if you want to relocate the center of gravity in your life, if you want to change where your life is going, if you want to make changes to your priorities, if you want to change where your heart is attracted, then redirect your treasures. But it's not easy, is it? It's challenging, isn't it? How do you put it into practice? Well, you can start today, and I want want to just suggest a way forward. It's called prioritized percentage and progressive giving. Prioritized percentage and progressive giving. What does prioritized giving mean? It means that when I get my paycheck or when I receive other income, 
Before I do anything for myself, knowing that my heart will follow my treasure, I take a first portion and intentionally direct it to where I know I want my heart to be. Listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. There's the priority. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all of your produce. Then, and here's a promise of provision that follows it, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. I don't even have any barns or any vats, but that sounds good to me. The second part of that is percentage giving. And what I want to suggest to you is that percentage giving is trackable. We mentioned last week that, you know, money is not mysterious, it's just math. Percentage giving is trackable, so choose an intentional percentage. Make sure that whatever percentage you choose will have the effect of changing your lifestyle. It's going to stretch you some. See, if if it isn't a stretch, if it isn't a bit of a struggle, it will never have the power to help you redirect your heart. It'll just be a tip. And for me to do this, I need to begin with the recognition that everything belongs to the Lord. And I, my identity then becomes being his money manager. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything, everything in it. Take a look around your home. I did this the other day. I was thinking about this verse. I took, took a look around my home and my yard, the things out in the yard, my vehicles and, and all the stuff. And, and, and honestly, you know, I, I asked myself, could I just honestly say that all of this is the Lord's from the perspective of my own heart? That was a stretch. See, it's not just poetry. Psalm 24.1 is a statement of total ownership. And the classic example of percentage giving is the practice of tithing, of course. The word itself literally means 10%. And it's written in Genesis 14 that Abraham gave a tithe. That is, he gave 10% of the spoils of war to a man named Melchizedek, who was the high priest of Salem or what became Jerusalem. And a simple observation from that is that the practice of tithing isn't primarily a feature of the Old Testament law, although it's contained there. The observation is that tithing preceded the law. It was a principle and a practice prior to the giving of the law, and it therefore now supersedes the law. There are some people that want to argue about the tithe, and it's, it's a tiresome argument. Well, it's not part of the New Testament expectation. Right. The New Testament expectation is that we give everything. 
Another example of percentage giving is found in the Old Testament law of first fruits. According to the law of Moses, the Israelites were to tithe of their livestock, their grain, their wine, their oil, their honey, of everything that God had blessed them with, they were to give him 10%. In Malachi 3.10, the prophet says to all of Israel, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Notice another confrontation with the religious elites. Jesus affirmed the tithe while he called them to the more important aspects of the life of obedience. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. There, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So yeah, go ahead and tithe. Just don't, just don't neglect the weightier issues. Law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. See, Jesus affirmed the practice of percentage giving in the form of the tithe. The third type or mode of giving is progressive giving. Progressive giving. Second Corinthians 8, Paul described for the believers in Corinth the, the generosity of the churches to the north in the Roman province of Macedonia. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And notice in the first part of verse 3 that they gave according to their means. This is an example of what I'm calling percentage giving. It's, it's in accordance with, there's a, there's a correlation between the amount that they gave and the amount that they had. In the second half of verse 3, Paul says that they gave beyond their means of their own accord. And that's what I'm calling progressive giving. To them, it wasn't a matter of law or obligation or anyone coercing them, but it was a matter of grace and privilege. Verse 4 tells us that they saw the opportunity to give generously as a personal favor. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. And why? Because verse 5, and don't miss this, because this is really the essence. Verse 5, they had given themselves first to the Lord. You see that? They had given themselves first to the Lord. And so what they were doing is putting their treasure where they wanted their hearts to be. Some of you have heard me tell the story of when Marcy and I were first married. And I was a, a I was a young youth pastor right out of college, working in a church, making zero. I mean, <laughs> I was barely surviving. I don't know why she married me. That was, that was not a catch. I married up. But Marcy was looking through my checkbook 
one day shortly after our honeymoon. And, and she says, I don't see a tithe in here. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, I, I kind of tightened up. <laughs> and she says, where's your tithe? I said, I can't afford to tithe. Have you seen what I make? She said, well, we're going to. We're going to. And as a submissive husband, I said, yes, dear. And we've been doing that ever since. We've never been what anyone would call wealthy, but we're certainly wealthy by world standards. And as you can see, I haven't missed a lot of meals. And maybe you can't imagine giving an entire 10% of your income. And I say, I would say, okay, I get that. So why not choose to simply give a higher percentage than you're giving now? Pick a number. Pick a percentage. Do you know that the average Christian gives only 2.5% of their income to the Lord? So there, there's about a 75% deficit in their giving. And you can assess for yourself on that basis whether you're, you're below average or, or merely average. But who wants to be merely average? I mean, why not be above average? Who wants to be below average for that matter? Why not choose at least to be above average? Why not pick a percentage that will stretch you in the direction of putting your treasure where your heart ought to be? And if you don't trust me or if you don't trust LifePoint Church and leadership here and our, our stewardship of finances, then I would say give it somewhere else. Give it somewhere where you're not being loved and nurtured and fed. God says, test me in this. Test me in this and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. See if it doesn't break the bondage of greed in your life. See if your heart doesn't gravitate that much more to the place where you know God wants it to be. Think about it. What would happen in your life if you weren't so caught up in stuff. Some of you know the name Rick Warren. He's the pastor of Saddleback Church down in Southern California. He wrote a book several years ago that was um, one of the most prolific uh, sellers in, in the history of publishing The Purpose Driven Life. And, and Rick Warren and his wife made the decision because they had this sudden influx of just Massive wealth from the sales of the books. They said, let's engage in progressive giving. And so now they give away 90% of their income and they live on 10. That's a great example of progressive giving. What would happen if in your life if you chose to be part of something bigger and more significant than your own life and your own dreams? What would happen if you started taking a percentage of all that God has blessed you with and gave it back, investing it in the kingdom of God? See, generosity is the key that unlocks the door to financial freedom, and generosity is the pathway that leads to the life that is truly life. What would happen in my life if I was set free from the worries of stuff and got focused on the fact that God is using me to make an eternal difference in someone else's life? 
What would happen if we were really set free, if we could get past this thing and decide to redirect our treasure so that our hearts were aligned with God's kingdom and with his priorities for our lives? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? That he what? He gave. For God so loved the world that he gave, prioritized giving. He gave his one and only son. Percentage giving, he held nothing back. Progressive giving, he keeps on pouring his love and his blessing into our lives. He keeps being patient with us. See, understand this this morning, that you are God's treasure. His heart is for you. He loves you. And when he gave his son Jesus to bear your sins, to die in your place in order to reconcile you to God, his heart was simply following his treasure. Think about what Christ has done for you. And in response, ask God, what do you want from me? He doesn't want a percentage of your heart, actually. He wants your whole heart. And this is not a financial issue primarily. It's a heart issue. Take some time and focus on the cross. And as you're doing that, pray, God, make me what you want me to be. I am here and now choosing to release my treasure and redirect it to where I know you want my heart to be. I hope you'll pick up a treasure principle book on your way out today if you haven't done that already. And again, we're asking just one per family for now. But take it and read it. Maybe you discuss it with your spouse or your family or your life group. Um, And then uh, right now, media, which you've seen slides for this morning before the service. um, Right now, media, if you're not familiar with it, has been called the Netflix of Christian video. And um, one one of the features on that is a uh, a whole study on the treasure principle. And there's a leader guide and there's a participant's guide and and all this. And there's four videos, four teaching videos. Be great to uh, to use in your family if you're a homeschooler uh, or um, you're just just a a family, husband, wife, couple, family. Um, Be great. You could use it in your life group as well. Whether we recognize it or not, stuff has a hold on our hearts. And generosity is the key that unlocks the door to financial freedom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to things that are practical to our lives, that uh, this whole life of discipleship is is not something just ethereal or theoretical or hypothetical, but it comes down to the the nitty-gritty of our the values of our hearts. And Lord, may our hearts be surrendered to you 
And may you use us and use the resources that you've blessed us with in turn to make a difference for time and for eternity. Lord, I just am so conscious in these days that our time is short, that you're coming soon. And Lord, help us to be found, to be faithful stewards, investing in the things that make a difference for eternity, investing in seeing men and women, boys and girls, come to know you as their personal Savior while they still have time. May we, Lord, be a faithful church, honoring to you so that you will find us when you come to be faithful. And we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our soon-coming King. Amen.